Hey everybody, my name is Kyle. Let me welcome you to Uplift. Let me welcome you to the conversation if you're watching on Sunday mornings. And let me welcome you to our podcast, Anchor Point, if you found us that way. We're in a series here uh, called That You May Believe. And it's a short series over the Gospel of John. I think one of the more unique of the four Gospels. And it's inspired by one of John's final sentences. This is from John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. If you're here with us, you can see it on your order of worship. We'll also have it on the screen. Look at this. Now, Jesus did many other signs. We're going to talk about that word a lot. In the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I love that the stated purpose, not often we get a stated purpose in the, for the writings of the of scripture, but this one is written so that you may believe. You can keep on believing. So to kind of fulfill that purpose, we're looking at the thematic movements of the gospel of John rather than a chapter by chapter journey, which is only why it's a couple more weeks left. Uh, our previous message looked at the theme of water. You can find that on our website or on our podcast. For this one, we're going to be looking at the theme of signs in the gospel. In fact, the, the message title is the signs of Jesus. So in the spirit of the message, I thought we could look at some signs. I thought we'd look at some signs, some physical signs, specifically some billboard signs, because here's why sign makers in general have been forced to become more creative in their production. Digital ads are more prevalent. We're on our phones a lot, pop-up, scrolling, interrupters. It's actually altered how we get information, how we process data. So sign makers have actually had to become a little more creative. They're competing with so much already. And then on top of that, for those of us that drive quite a bit and drive real fast, there's not a lot of time to look at a, at a billboard. So I thought I'd show you some of the more creative signs here. Let me show you the first one here. This one is an Austrian sign, and it's advertising and a restaurant. So you're actually driving into this person's mouth, you are a part of the ad campaign. You can't miss this sign. Here's another one. This one's kind of cool. This is for McDonald's. Those letters on the sign, those are plants, and they grew over the course of three weeks. They were planted in a soil-based billboard, so it reinforces the message. This fresh salads. Here's one. This is from Cadbury. Uh, this is a 3D billboard that actually shows the product in use. It's a giant chocolate bar that looks like it's been torn away. Or how about this one? This one actually makes you part of the sign. You walk underneath the light bulb. It makes you feel like you've got uh, a bright idea. Here's one uh, from the Kansas City Royals. This says everything without saying anything, right? You know exactly what this one's about. And a couple more here. Take a look at this one. This is not just the sign, but it's the entire structure. It's advertising a tool, and it goes all the way down to the post itself. And I think this is our last one. Let me show you this one. This one's kind of cool. It breaks the sidewalls. It's designed to make you look because it looks different. Now, all of these signs have tons of creativity with their messaging. It's vital, in fact, because the, it, the entire psychology of brand awareness is actually impressive. Successive brand, successful brand builders, they understand that your connection to the product they advertise is a, it's a really powerful hook. And having a great sign that gets you there is incredibly important. Our, our previous examples actually prove that. 
they've managed to lift their product from the billboard and they make you think about it. They're successful at pointing you from the sign to the product they advertise. And that's the point of a sign. A sign is not an end to itself. It's a marker. It's an arrow that moves you to something else. And John wrote his gospel with this in mind. In fact, you may know this. He included in his gospel only seven signs, only seven. And they're quite specific, and they're only in the first half of the gospel. Now, to set this up, we have to begin where John begins, and that's in John chapter 1, verse 1. Let me explain to you why we're going to do this in a minute, but I think it's important to know that John begins his book with a thorough picture of Jesus's identity. You know this, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, there's no crescendo to determine the identity of Jesus. None. Now, that's important. John began his gospel with irrefutable facts, with information that's true. He doesn't begin his gospel trying to convince you of something. He's not trying to get you to believe anything when this starts. He actually saves that appeal for a little bit later. We actually read it. We're going to read it again in a minute. And the signs of his gospel are the centerpiece of that appeal. And all of this is propelling us to believe. So he begins with the truth, and then he builds you to a crescendo of belief, not that this is true, but why you should believe in him. Let's read this again. It's, let's read it in context now. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs. We just found out Jesus' identity. Did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which aren't written in this book, but the ones in this book are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Knowing, knowing who Jesus is, knowing his identity and his creative force in the advent of the world, that's good. It's necessary. But listen, this is, this is critical. But just because you know that, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to believe it. Knowing and believing are two different things. And John, intelligent, smart, writer, knew the difference. Knowing something is truth and believing it as truth is two different things. So what John does is he builds this with signs. And he says that these signs point us to the truth of Jesus' identity, but they also provide the fuel, the gasoline for us to believe in Jesus but they're not the same thing. Let me give you an example. Yesterday, yesterday morning I left my house. I got a little Nissan Sentra, a little commuter car. I, don't, I just drive it to work and I drive it home. And I, as usual, I, I get in my car and I take off and I'm listening to music. I, I've got a little playlist in Spotify I built. It's, it, the name of the playlist is called Drive Worship. It's not a creative name. I didn't know what else to call it. So I just... I just drop tons of songs in there that I like, and I'm pretty picky about my music. But these are songs that I want, they're worship songs that I listen to on my, my drive to work. And so on the way out of my neighborhood, I turn the music up pretty loud, uh, and, and I start singing. I sing as loud as I can sing. Not a, not a big surprise. I'm sure that people who stop next to me at stoplights think, think I'm a little crazy, but I'm singing. And I, that's what I'm doing. 
And I, and I don't want to hear anything. I don't want to hear road noise. I don't want to hear the people who honk at me. I don't, I don't want to hear any of that. I just want to hear the music. I want to hear the chords, and I want to hear the lyrics. But yesterday, I'm leaving. I'm driving. I'm a mile from my house, and I start hearing a rhythm that didn't match the song. So my first thought was that this particular song had a drum track that I hadn't yet heard. And I like discovering new parts of the music. So I turn it up a little bit louder, trying to figure out what this sound is. But the rhythm is, was increasingly out of sync with the music. So I turned down the volume to the music. And what I heard was not a percussion beat, but a rattle. And it was coming from my back right fender. All right, so I pulled over. There's a little park there, and I turned into the park, turned off the car, got out, went to the back right fender like I knew what I was doing, right? I get out, I get on the ground to see if something's caught in there, caught on the wheel, maybe under the wheel. There's nothing there, so I'm, I'm feeling somewhat, a little more confident, right? I can't see anything, so I think I'm okay. So I get back in the driver's seat, started the car, put it in gear, drove forward. I start hearing the rattle again. Now, it's not as loud, but it's there. So I'm thinking, this might be a good sign. The rattle's a little quieter. So I'm thinking, car's fine. <laughs> car's fine. And then I think what we've all thought, maybe if I just ignored it, it'll disappear, right? That's kind of what I'm thinking. So I actually had a moment where I thought, I'm just going to go ahead and drive to work. But then my second thought immediately was this. I'm now a grown-up. And grown-ups get their cars fixed. <laughs> so that was my second thought. So I drive it to the, the, to the garage, and my mechanic tells me a, a few hours later that he removed the wheel, and the parts for the brake pads and the shoes just fell out. Yeah, that's what happened to me yesterday. That rattle was a sign that told me a couple of things. One, it told me my car wasn't working properly. That's what it told me. Now, I didn't have to believe that. In fact, I didn't want to believe it. And I could have continued, but it was broken whether I believed it or not. That was the truth of the moment. It was broken. I didn't have to believe that. But that sign also told me that I better believe it. Because something's going on that's not quite right. In fact, I mean, the mechanic didn't say this, but there was a good chance the whole thing was going to collapse in a, you know, a day or two, and it would have been a disaster. That's the kind of message that the signs in the Gospel of John tell us right? They propel us to believe. They're true, whether we think they're true or not, but they also push us to believe in Jesus. Let me tell you something interesting about the gospel of John. John never calls a miracle a miracle. He never even uses that word in his gospel. These extraordinary, supernatural, breaking the laws of physics events that Jesus did in the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they were called miracles. Actually, two or three words, but miracles were the most common. John used a different word. He used the word signs. Two different words. Two different Greek words. In fact, I've got them up here. Matthew and Mark and Luke generally used a Greek word called dunamis. Now, that word means a mighty work. In fact, it's the root of our English word. You can probably seen it, see it for dynamite. The miracles in the first three Gospels are their own events. They are mighty works. That's what they are. That's the point. But John uses a different word. Simeon 
is what he calls them. And this is how we translate this word into signs. And what John does very creatively here is he tells us that these seven events are a means to an end. They're not just the works on themselves. They point to something other than themselves. And we're going to talk about in just a few minutes what they actually point to. So what we're going to do over the next few minutes is we're going to, we're going to kind of walk through each of these seven signs. I think that's important for us to do. Now, don't forget, he includes seven of these, and they're an exclusive curation of these signs. And, and the reason why he chose seven, I mean, we, he doesn't say this, but seven represents, the number seven represented perfection to Jewish people. So to John, we can safely say that these seven are the perfect seven to move you to belief. Let's take a look at these. I've got them listed on your order of worship. You can follow along, take some notes if you want to along the way. The first of the seven, Jesus turned water to wine in the city of Cana in John chapter 2. Pretty famous story. We learn a couple of things about Jesus here. The first thing is that Jesus loves a party, loves a party. Now, this germane point is kind of overlooked sometimes when we investigate the signs of Jesus in this gospel. It's important to see that Jesus is having a good time here. He wants the party to continue. That's kind of what's going on here. So miraculously changing water into the good wine defied the expectations of the host and even the crowd who the host expected, and then the crowd did too, to serve the more diluted wine near the end of the party. But Jesus says, no, we're going we're gonna to bring out the good stuff. I'm going to transform it to the best wine you've ever tasted. That's pretty significant. We see the humanity of Jesus here, his temperament. We see his Worldview, that's important. But here's the second thing, and this is more of a theological bit of information. Jesus changes the water of purification. They're in purification jars. He changes that water into wine. What he does here is he took the water that was meant to cleanse a person on the outside, and he replaced it with wine that could bring joy to a person from the inside. And in fact, John wrote that Jesus performed this miracle specifically to manifest his glory. In other words, to show that he's not just another person. There's something intrinsically special about Jesus. Here's the second one. That one's impressive. I think we can keep going. The second one feels a little bit bolder. In John chapter 4, Jesus is again in Cana in Galilee, and this is where he healed the son of a nobleman of a governor, of a politician. And he rescued the son from the point of death. And what's really fascinating about this miracle is that he does this from a distance of maybe 20 miles or so. So this man, this politician, this nobleman approached Jesus and he invites Jesus to his home to heal his son. But Jesus doesn't go with him. He stays where he is and he healed the boy with this statement. It's in chapter 4, verse 50. Your son will live. Now, can you imagine the dad who had come to plead his case? He had to take Jesus at his word. That's all that Jesus gave him. And so the, the nobleman, the politician, left Jesus, believing that what Jesus said would happen would actually happen. The third miracle is in John chapter 5. And it feels like miracles are getting more pronounced, a little, little more ambitious as we go. In John chapter 5, 
Jesus healed a skeptical paralytic in John chapter 5. And, and what's interesting about this particular healing is that the man who, after he was given the ability to walk, reported actually reported Jesus to the authorities. He, he, he kind of wants to be on the in crowd. And these authorities are the ones that eventually persecute Jesus for doing such a miracle. This one's a little different than the previous son. Because here, Jesus healed a man who had no faith that such a thing could even happen. There wasn't some great calling moment. Jesus heals a guy who was quite skeptical and didn't think it could even happen. And what we kind of learn from this is that this man evidently never came to any sort of faith in Jesus. Fourth miracle, let's keep going. This is found in John chapter 6, where John, or where Jesus fed 5,000 men, possibly more, but we're only given the number of the men. And he fed them miraculously from five loaves of bread and two fish. This whole multitude finished their meal. In fact, according to John chapter 6, verse 12, they ate their fill. They were stuffed. It wasn't a snack. But the miracle still continued. The sign still continued. You know this. Because after everyone had eaten all they could eat, the disciples gathered 12 baskets of leftover bread. And it's right here. I love this. Where we start seeing the brilliance of John as the author. Because in the first miracle, the first miracle brought us an abundance of new wine. What does this miracle do? It brings us an abundance of bread. It's fascinating. In fact, in the next few moments in John chapter 6, Jesus will call himself the bread of life. And those for whom this miracle was performed, they knew they'd seen something special. They called Jesus a prophet, a prophet. The fifth miracle immediately follows in John chapter 6 where we find Jesus walking on the water. Also in this miracle, he reveals himself to his disciples in the storm. Notable in this miracle is that Jesus never calmed the storm. He didn't do that. He just endured the storm with them. He's not the king that people wanted, but in that moment, he's the king they needed. They needed him to be with them. Sixth miracle, John chapter 9. This is where Jesus restored the sight of a man who was born blind. Now, we discover here that the man's healing actually led to his personal defense of Jesus, which further led to his expulsion from the synagogue and his separation from those who believed themselves to be the true people of God. What's remarkable here in this miracle is that this man is willing to accept any risk that came from pointing people to Jesus, even a risk that would divorce him from everything he knew, only to believe Jesus was who he said he was. And in John chapter 9, verse 38, John tells us that this man worshipped Jesus. That's critical. And the seventh and final miracle is found in John chapter 11, where Jesus resurrected his dead friend Lazarus. Now, Jesus' friend Lazarus, according to the, the, the text, was dead for three days. 
before Jesus brought him back to life. And this story finds Jesus telling Martha, Lazarus' sister, that he, that Jesus is the resurrection. And we get, we find here that it's this miracle that points us to Jesus' own resurrection after three days. Now, there's an overview, all the seven signs in the Gospel of John. Let me kind of break them down for you maybe a little bit in a little more pointed way because they each show us something specific and unique about Jesus. But as a whole, they show Jesus' power in various and unique ways. So in the first one, Jesus changed water to wine. He revealed himself to be the, the master of quality, right? He produces aged wine, good wine in a matter of seconds. In the second one, he healed the politician's son, though separated from him by 20 miles, he reveals himself as the master of space. In the third one, he heals the paralytic who was afflicted by paralysis for 38 years. And he heals him without treatments or medicine. And in this moment, he's the master of time. The next miracle, Jesus feeds 5,000 men, maybe thousands more. He's the master of quantity. The next, he's, he walks on water. He's the master over natural laws. The, the, the sixth miracle, he healed a man born blind in a story surrounded by the reasons for the man's blindness. It's a great conversation. You should read John 9. The man was blind, Jesus said, so he could be a conduit of God's glory. And so in this one, Jesus reveals himself as a master over adversity. And in the final one, by resurrecting Lazarus, he shows us that he is the master over death. But perhaps the greatest indication of Jesus' signs in the gospel is not what was included, but what was excluded. You've probably picked up on this. Nowhere in this gospel does Jesus exorcise a demon. Not once. There are no people in this gospel possessed by unclean spirits. Whereas in Mark's gospel, it's the very first miracle that Jesus performs in the synagogue. It's an exorcism. Except, except, there is an exorcism in this gospel. Let me tell you where it comes. Now look, these seven miracles, they're bundled together, right? They give us a specific glimpse into Jesus' power. It's, sometimes it's subdued. Jesus does things with mere words. There's no incantations or no large processes. He turns water into wine by thinking it into existence. He walks on water by walking on water. He tells Lazarus just to get out of the grave. These, these seven signs, when you see them this way, when you look at them this way, on one side you can think, man, these are amazing. But when you see them in John, they're, they're like afterthoughts, right? Jesus just does things. He just, it's like a, it's a part of who he is. Because they point, they show us the power of Jesus. And the power is reserved really for just one thing. It's reserved for the only exorcism in this gospel. Let's read this together. This is from John chapter 12. It's an extended passage. We're going to start in verse 27. Look at what Jesus says. "Now, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. 
Father God speaks to Jesus. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered in verse 30, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus performed one exorcism in this gospel. He exorcised the ruler of this world, the prince of this world, Satan himself. And he did this at his death. These seven signs are the preamble. They're the preamble. Jesus' ultimate work is ending the power of evil. And the one who did all of these amazing signs as almost an afterthought is the one who has the power to destroy the grip of the devil. Now look, evil can harm you. It can. It's harmed me. It will harm you. But listen, its harm is temporary. It's temporary. Because even though the cross itself might seem to be Satan's triumph. It was actually his defeat. Jesus' crucifixion was the very judgment on a world held hostage by evil. Jesus' crucifixion, listen to this, it was evil at its zenith. It took the most powerful empire in the world to murder a wandering rabbi from a local fishing village on the eastern part of its border. Imagine that. It was so threatened by Jesus, it took the entire empire to do this. Yet, Jesus knew that he was given to this death by God himself, right? For God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave his only son. There is no victory here for evil. Its power was hijacked by God and rendered useless. Evil can't move unless God gives it space to do so. So listen, you know what that means? That means that it's impotent. It has no power. Even though its reach is far, its power is an illusion. It's weak. It's weak enough that according to James, our resistance to devil causes him to do what? Flee. What does it say? Resist the devil. What will he do? He will flee from you. I want you to be confident in this mighty sign of Jesus, that the one who transforms the old into new, the one who heals over space and time, who bends natural law to his will, has said that evil has no grip over you. You follow Jesus, the one who casts Satan out of this place. Praise God for Jesus, his son. 